This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at Sira Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Go to sirahintensive.com to register and for more information. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Inshallah, continuing with our study of the Shama'il Muhammadiyah, the prophetic personality. We'll be starting with uh, the third chapter, Babu ma ja'a fi sha'ri rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The chapter about the hair of the Messenger ﷺ. Before we get started, uh, just two things. Obviously, we've read a lot of mention about his hair. Um, so this chapter won't so much be talking about uh, what his hair exactly was like in terms of looks, but how long the Prophet ﷺ typically used to have his hair. So this chapter will be focusing on that. But because we've talked about a lot of it before already, uh, we'll be able to go through this fairly quickly, inshallah. The second point I wanted to make, which will seem like a minor point, but um, it's what will clarify something to you in the text, for the student in the text, so that the student doesn't assume that it's a typo, but rather it's a part of the Arabic language itself. The word for hair in the Arabic language is sha'r. All right? But fihi lughatan, there are two ways that the Arabs would say that word sha'r. They would either say it bisukun al-ayn, Sometimes they would say sha'arun with a fatha on the ayn, and sometimes they would say it with a sukun, sha'arun with a sukun on the ayn. So if you sometimes see it with a sukun and sometimes with a fatha, you can understand that it's not a typo, but the Arabs would say it in both ways. <clears throat> so we'll go ahead and start with the first hadith, insha'Allah. Imam Tirmidhi says, Haddathana Ali ibn Hujrin. قال أخبرنا إسماعيل بن إبراهيم عن حميد عن أنس بن مالك رضي الله تعالى عنه قال كان شاعر رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إلى نصف أذنيه أنس بن مالك رضي الله تعالى عنه relates that the hair of the messenger صلى الله عليه وسلم was till the middle of his ears حديث number two قال حدثنا هناد بن سري قال أخبرنا عبد الرحمن ابن أبي أبي الزناد عن هشام بن عروة عن أبيه عن عائشة رضي الله تعالى عنها قالت كنت أغتسل أنا ورسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من إناه واحد وكان له شاعر فوق الجمة ودون الوفرة <clears throat> The mother of the believers Aisha رضي الله تعالى عنها relates that my, I, the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم and I used to bathe from the same container and he had hair that was above his shoulders but below his earlobes. So it was still the middle of the neck. Now I wanted to mention a couple of things here. Uh, there are three 
terms that you will, or I should rather maybe say four vocabulary terms that you should be familiar with when talking about the length of the hair of the Prophet ﷺ. The first vocabulary that you see or you'll come across is the word shahma. Shahma refers to the ear lobe. So when it says shahmatul udunayn, those are the ear lobes. Or nisful udunayn is the middle of the ear. The second vocabulary term is wafra. Wafra is when hair comes to the ear lobe. The second vocabulary term is jumma. Jumma refers to when the hair actually touches the shoulder. And then the third vocabulary term, which is limma, it refers to when the hair is between the ear and the shoulder, basically on the neck. That, refers, that is referred to as the limma. So that's the first issue. Just these are the vocabulary terms you'll come across. So when Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha says that the hair of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam was below al-wafra, that means it fell a little bit lower than his earlobes. But then she says, فوق al-jumma, however it was above his shoulder. So it was till his neck. That it fell somewhere in the middle of his neck. The second thing obviously here that is mentioned that somebody might notice is that Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha is saying that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and her, they would bathe from the same container. Now, <clears throat> this <clears throat> can be understood in a number of ways. The muhaddithun, the scholars, they interpret this in a number of different ways. Number one, it could be referring to the fact that there was one container of water and both the Messenger of Allah and I both used to be able to bathe from the water that was in that container. Meaning this is referring to the quantity of water that they used to use. And I spoke about this, I believe it was yesterday, that the Prophet of Allah used to make wudu with about a cup of water. And the Prophet would take an entire ghusl with, with the amount of water that would basically be about four to five cups of water. All put together, the Prophet would be able to take a ghusl from that. Alright, so it was a very efficient use of water. The Messenger of Allah um, talked about sarafun filma, right? Israf. And um, the, the Prophet was questioned by one of his companions, A filma'i sarafun ya Rasulullah? A filma'i sarafun ya Rasulullah? That you can be excessive with water. Israf usually means excessiveness. When you spend too much money on something. Right? When you can buy a pair of shoes for 20, 30, 40 dollars, and yet you go and buy a 400 dollar pair of shoes, that's called Israf. And so the Prophet ﷺ was asked, can someone practice that same level of extravagance or excessiveness in the usage of water? He said, Naam wa filma'i sarafun. That you can be excessive in your usage of water. The Prophet ﷺ in a hadith, he says, don't waste water even if you are sitting at a running stream. Now obviously, if you're using water at a running stream, it keeps on running. And unless you know, you're dumping the water out, it might fall back into the stream which and it's running, so it naturally purifies it. But nevertheless, the Prophet ﷺ is using that. That's balagha. Right? That's emphasis and eloquence. That the Prophet ﷺ is saying, even at a running stream, just don't build the habit of uh, wasting water or being excessive with water. So that's something else that the Prophet ﷺ alludes to. So when Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha says that the Messenger of Allah ﷺ and I would both bathe from the same container, it could be referring to the quantity of water that was used. We would go fill up one bucket of water and both of us were able to use it in order to take a bath or a shower. At the same time, the muhaddithun also explained that the verbiage that Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha is saying, 
In the Arabic language, when you use a verb in this manner, when you say, "Kuntu aghtasilu ana wa Rasulullahi sallallahu alaihi wasallam," that when you structure a verb in this manner, that you say you you attribute an action to yourself, and then you bring the pronoun for the first person outside of the verb, and then you attach another doer. Right, another doer to the verb uh, on top of that. That type of structure usually means that the action was taking place at the same time. I'm sorry, it's a little bit of an issue of grammar, so it might get a little complicated. But basically, when you say that I used to bathe, I and the messenger. So in the Arabic language, if you were to literally translate it, that's how it translates. I used to bathe, I and the messenger. So when you bring it out and you structure it that way in in Arabic grammar, it communicates the meaning that two individuals were doing that particular verb, that action, at the same exact time. And so what the narration is stating in that particular case is that Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, the mother of the believers, she's saying that the Prophet sallallahu and her would take a bath at the same time. Now there's two issues here, obviously we want to be appropriate, um, it's a family environment. Um, and number two, we are speaking about the Messenger wasallam, and we are speaking about our mother Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. So there's no room for any type of inappropriate talk or the usage of any type of um, you know, lingo or uh, slang language that would try to explain exactly what they were doing. But as appropriately as possible, what Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha is communicating to us, what she is teaching us, is the intimacy that a husband and wife are to enjoy with one another. That the Messenger of Allah sallallahu as he was the best of all mankind, in terms of character, in terms of knowledge, in terms of worship, in terms of obedience to Allah, in terms of his leadership, in terms of his nobility and dignity and modesty and truthfulness and honesty and so on and so forth. The Prophet of Allah ﷺ was also the best of all of mankind when it came to handling each and every single relationship appropriately. So the Prophet ﷺ was extremely respectful of his uh, elders. And the Prophet ﷺ was extremely kind and merciful and gracious with the people who were younger than him. And he was extremely merciful, kind, forgiving and compassionate with his children. And similarly, the Prophet ﷺ was very intimate, very loving and very romantic with his spouse. And he is a role model for us in that regard as well. And so the only reason, you can tell why our mother Aisha is sharing this with us. You know, I was talking about this with someone else recently. <clears throat> Normally when you read the Qur'an, and when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about things like intimacy between the spouses, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses language that is not very expressive. In order to teach us a sense of modesty and dignity and privacy. The Messenger of Allah when he speaks about matters of intimacy, he would similarly use words that were representative of that intimacy, but not talk about it outright. Again, to teach us a sense of modesty and appropriateness. However, the wives of the Messenger wasallam, the mothers of the believers, they oftentimes shared very intimate details. And the normal ruling within the religion is that these types of intimate details should not be shared. They should not be shared. They should not be talked about publicly. 
But the mothers of the believers, they were the most modest women of all, of all time, of all mankind. They were the most modest and dignified women. That wal'ayyadu billah, it's not that because they're talking about this that they had a lack of modesty, that's, that would, that's completely untrue. But they were the most modest women. But they understood that they were in a position where they had to make sacrifices for the greater good of the community. They made sacrifices of time. They, made sacrif- they shared the Prophet ﷺ with all of mankind. They made sacrifices of their own time, where the mothers of the believers became the teachers of the community. They made sacrifices of money. They made sacrifices of opportunity, and so on and so forth. And one of the great sacrifices that they had to make was the fact that they would have to share some of their personal intimate lives, details of their intimate personal lives, so that we would know what is appropriate and what is not. And somebody could argue potentially, well, that should be pretty obvious to everybody, that spouses are supposed to be intimate with one another, and they could practice whatever level of intimacy you know, they're comfortable with. But that's not necessarily a given. One of the narrations that we're going to read about today is that we saw that at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, some of the Jewish tribes that went a little too far in trying to practice what they thought was the religion and interpreted the religion inappropriately, their religion inappropriately, that they had actually created standards of piety that were not from the religion itself. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that they invented, they innovated a form of monasticism, right? Over conservativeness, over rigidness, extreme rigidness in the practice of the religion that we did not mandate or obligate upon them. And so we saw things like when there, and we're going to read about this, that when their women would be um, during their days of menstruation, that they would not even make any type of physical contact with them. They would not make any physical contact with them, interpreting that as some form of piety. That even in intimate relations between spouses, they started becoming very rigid in things, and started restricting things that were not permissible. And as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Messenger وسلم, about a particular situation, but for us it's a very vast lesson in it. Why do you make impermissible for you what God has made open and permissible for you? One of the crimes of the nations of the past that Allah says in the Quran is that they would make not just make permissible what God had forbidden that they would do impermissible things, but vice versa. That they would also treat open and permissible things as being haram. They would make things haram on themselves. And that is something that is not permissible. That in and of itself is impermissible. And that is a distortion of the religion. And it is especially, if two people consensually decide that they're not comfortable with something, that's their choice. Now it's not a mandate, it's not an obligation, that because of this narration, not every spouse, every couple has to practice this. If they consensually and mutually agree that they're not comfortable with something, that's their choice. But when it starts to become prevalent in the community as a standard of religiousness or piety, then that becomes a distortion of the religion. <clears throat> 
I remember my teacher, he was explaining to us, our teacher in hadith, he was explaining something to us, very interesting, very fascinating. When you're reading through the ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ, you come across instances, situations where a person sits in front of the Prophet ﷺ. A person sits in front of the Prophet ﷺ in the masjid and requests permission, asks him blatantly for the permission to the allowance to go and commit fornication. Blatantly. In the masjid. And the Prophet ﷺ doesn't have a single wrinkle, a single wrinkle on his forehead. The Prophet ﷺ doesn't even frown at that young man. Other people, فَأَقْبَلَ النَّاسُ عَلَيْهِ Everybody turned towards him. You know when everybody just turned towards somebody? That look, you're going to die now. Right? Everybody turned on him. Right? And the Prophet ﷺ said, Utrukuhu, leave him, leave him, shoo. And the Prophet ﷺ didn't even have a single, you know, frown, didn't have the slightest bit of a frown on his face. Nothing. Very pleasant. It didn't phase him, it didn't bother him. Of course, not that he approved of it. He taught the young man what is right and what is wrong. But the reaction is interesting. He's not angered, he's not frustrated, he's not upset, but he educates him. Now compare that, contrast that to when those three young men, they go to one of the wives of the Prophet Umm Salama, and they ask her about the daily routine of the Prophet And she informs him, he sleeps this much, wakes up this time, spends time with family, etc., etc., etc. كَأَنَّهُمْ تَقَالُوهَا they felt like this is not that much, it's not that heavy. Not that they were talking bad about the Messenger ﷺ, they just said that we think we can very easily manage that schedule, but he is a Messenger of Allah, God has forgiven him, God has protected him, he is blessed by Allah, we would have to work a lot harder. So they took oaths. They took oaths among themselves. One of them said that I will never get married. Marriage, children, family, distraction. So I'm never going to get married. Just going to worship for the rest of my life. One young man, he said that I will fast every single day of my life. The third young man said, I will never sleep at night. I will never sleep between Isha and Fajr, ever. I'll just take a couple of naps throughout the day and I'll manage. But I'll worship all night, every night. When the Messenger of Allah heard... When he was informed that these were the oaths they had taken, the reaction of the Messenger is fascinating. He was visibly angry. Remember we read that he had that vein in the middle of his forehead and it would bulge when he was angry? The vein was bulging. His face had turned red. His voice was raised and stern. And he went to them. And look how he speaks to them. A, a man urinates in the masjid and he says, Like these are masajid, these are the houses of God, places of worship. We don't do things like this here. That's how he addresses. The young man who says, I'd like to go and fornicate with that woman. He says that, would you like it if someone said that about a female member of your family? That's how he addresses. What does he say to these young men? Who are saying, we will worship and pray and fast. 
He says, "Ana a'lamukum." I know more than you. Wa an atqakum billah. And I have I'm a lot more pious than you are. That's very interesting. Very fascinating. That is not the normal tone of the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So our teacher asked us, how do you explain that? Here you have ma'siyah. You have sin. Zina. And the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam is very calm, very relaxed very level-headed, very soft, very gentle in advising him. Here you have somebody, albeit going a little to an extreme, but in worship, ibadah. And the Prophet ﷺ is angry and almost yelling and reprimanding them. Like how, how do you explain that? And so our teacher explained to us that... In the first instance, that's a sin. And fundamentally, deep down inside, a person realizes it's a sin. Maybe doesn't know, but the second that they're informed, they realize, okay, that's a sin. And they repent and they return from it. And everybody else in the community recognizes it as a sin. Maybe they don't know, but as soon as they're informed, they say, okay, that's a sin. What those other young men were talking about was altering, was changing the very nature of the deen and the religion itself. That was distortion of the religion. And that is something that if it catches on, because it's under the guise of piety, right? On the surface it looks good. But the trajectory that that has is a complete corruption of the religion over the span of generations. And it oftentimes takes generations after generations to correct such a distortion within the religion. And that is why that's more problematic. And so going back to the topic here, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha is sharing this with us. And they shouldered the burden of sharing this information with us. They made that sacrifice to make sure that nobody would ever create a standard within the religion that does not belong in the religion. That somehow being you know, very rigid in terms of intimacy with one's spouse is not piety. And if you interpret it as piety, you are extremely incorrect. You're committing a much greater crime than maybe just not being intimate with your spouse. You are now distorting the religion, which is a very serious issue. And so the second interpretation, as I was mentioning of this, Excuse me. <clears throat> is that the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam or Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha is informing us that they would actually bathe together but they are spouses that is permissible between them and in no way shape or form is this representative of any type of lewdness or shamelessness but this is intimacy and as the Prophet sallallahu taught the sahaba intimacy with one's spouse is an act of reward it is a sadaqah going outside of that relationship is where it becomes a sin May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us all. <clears throat> Hadith number three. قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا أَحْمَدُ بْنُ مَنِيعٌ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا أَبُو قَتَنٌ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا شُعْبَ عَنَ أَبِي إِسْحَاقِ عَنِ الْبَرَاءِ بْنِ عَازِبٍ رضي الله تعالى عنه قال كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم مربوعا بعيد ما بين المنكبين منكبين وكانت جمته تضرب شحمة أذنيه 
Barabina Azib radiallahu ta'ala anhu, we've seen this type of a hadith before. He says a messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa was of an average build, his shoulders were wide, and the hair of the Prophet ﷺ in the back would actually reach down to the bottom of his neck, but on the sides it would come up to, it would curl up around his earlobes because of the slight curliness of the hair of the Prophet ﷺ. Hadith number four. قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مُحَمَّدُ بْنُ بَشَّارٍ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا وَهْبُ بْنُ جَرِيبْنِ حَازِمٍ قَالَ حَدَّثَنِي أَبِي عَنْ قَتَادَ قَالَ قُلْتُ لِي أَنَسِ بْنِ مَالِكٍ رضي الله تعالى عنه كيف كان شعر رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال لم يكن بالجعد ولا بالسبط كان يبلغ شعره شحمة أذنيه Qatada rahimullahu ta'ala says that I asked Anas ibn Malik, the companion of the Prophet ﷺ, how was the hair of the Messenger ﷺ? He said it was not extremely curly, nor was it completely straight. Um, and the hair of the Messenger ﷺ was up to his earlobes. Hadith number five. Qala haddathana Muhammad ibn Yahya ابن أبي عمر المكي قال حدثنا سفيان بن عيينة عن ابن أبي نجيح عن مجاهد عن أم هاني بنت أبي طالب رضي الله تعالى عنها قالت قدم رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم مكة قدمة وله أربع غدائر So I'll translate this and then I'll explain أم هاني the daughter of Abu Talib she says that the Messenger of Allah came to Mecca once and he had his hair was split up into four sections. <clears throat> so now I'll explain this. First and foremost, Ummu Hani, this is the cousin of the Prophet and she is the sister of Ali the daughter of Abu Talib. She was a believing woman, she was a Sahabiya. And she says the Messenger of Allah came to Mecca once. Now somebody could have the question, wasn't he from Mecca? What does that mean he came to Mecca once? So that automatically implies that this was after the Hijrah, after the migration. After the Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ, how many times did he revisit Mecca? Four times. How many times did the Prophet ﷺ visit Mecca after the Hijrah? Four times, you're supposed to respond. How many times? Four, four times, alright. So the Prophet ﷺ visited Mecca four times after migrating to Medina. The first instance is what we call Umratul Qada. Umratul Qada. Alright. And so that was when the Prophet ﷺ, along with his companions had set out for Umrah. We're going to be going through this in the seerah. And they were stopped for the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Part of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was that they would return back the following year, would be allowed to remain in Mecca for three days, and be able to perform Umrah at that time. That was the first instance. The second occasion on which the Prophet ﷺ visited uh, Mecca was the conquest of Mecca. Fathu Mecca. So the second instance was the Prophet ﷺ visiting the city of Mecca for the conquest of Mecca. The third instance on which the Prophet ﷺ visited the city of Mecca 
was not so much the fact that he came from uh, Medina and visited a fourth time. But after Fatshu Makkah, when the Prophet ﷺ, he left uh, to engage in the battle of Hunayn, the, the battle that took place after the conquest of Makkah, after the battle of Hunayn, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ returned back to Makkah one more time. And he performed Umrah once more. Because he did not want to just return back he was close enough to Mecca, where the Prophet ﷺ, he wanted to go back to Mecca one more time and be able to do Umrah once more. So that was the third time. And then of course the Prophet ﷺ came for the Hajjatul Wida', which was the farewell pilgrimage. So those were the four occasions on which the Prophet ﷺ visited Mecca. I guess in a sense you could consolidate them into three actual trips outside of Medina, but nevertheless he actually entered back into Mecca four times after the hijrah, the migration to Medina. Once for Umrah, after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, second time the conquest of Mecca, the third time when he left for the Battle of Hunayn, and then he came back and did Umrah once more, and settled some more issues within Mecca, and then the fourth occasion was when he came for the farewell Hajj, the farewell pilgrimage. The next thing is that she describes the hair of the Prophet ﷺ that it was divided into almost like four sections. What that means is that when the hair of the Prophet ﷺ got very long, to the point where it was touching just the top of his shoulders, that the hair of the Prophet ﷺ, because some, uh, the hair of the Prophet ﷺ was kind of curly, so what would happen was that it would curl up around his ears, so then it would bunch up a little bit here, on either side of his face. And then, then there was hair that would hang in the back. And the Prophet ﷺ would oftentimes wear a turban. And the turban, there's a specific chapter about the amama, the turban of the Prophet ﷺ, that it actually used to hang like a, a piece of the turban, like what you could call, I guess, the tail of the turban. It would hang in the back of the head of the Prophet ﷺ. And so because of that turban hanging back behind the head of the Prophet ﷺ, that would sometimes also part his hair in the middle into the back. So if you looked at it, there was hair that was kind of bunched up over here on either side of his neck, and then the hair in the back would become split because of the tail of the turban. So you could count almost four sections that his hair was divided into. It by no means does it mean that the Prophet ﷺ had four braids. Alright, sometimes people will see the uh, inappropriate translations or not, uh, they'll see bad translations of this particular hadith and they'll assume that the Prophet ﷺ had four braids. Absolutely not. In fact, the Prophet ﷺ identified the fact that braids are something that women do within their hair and he forbade men from uh, emulating women in these types of things. So he actually did not allow for men to braid their hair in this regard. Hadith number six. قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا سُوَيْدُ بْنُ نَصْرٍ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا عَبْدُ اللَّهِ إِبْنُ الْمُبَارَكِ عَنْ مَعْمَرَ عَنْ ثَابِتِ الْبَنَانِ عَنْ أَنَسْ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى عَنْهُ أَنَّ شَعَرَ الرَّسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ كَانَ إِلَى أَنْصَافِ أُذُنَيْهِ أَنَسْ بْنُ مَالِكٍ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى عَنْهُ relates that the hair of the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم was till the middle of his ears. Hadith number seven of this chapter. قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا سُوَيْدُ بْنُ نَصْرٍ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا One second. 
All right, there's a little bit of a typo in the text. قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا سُوَيْدُ بْنُ نَصْرٍ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا عَبْدُ اللَّهِ إِبْنُ الْمُبَارَكِ عَنْ يُنُسُ بْنُ يَزِيدٍ عَنْ الزُّهْرِ وَقَالْ حَدَّثَنَا عُبَيْدُ اللَّهِ إِبْنُ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ إِبْنُ عُتْبَ عَنْ إِبْنِ عَبَّاسٍ أَنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ كَانَ يُسْدِلُ شَعْرَهُ وَكَانَ الْمُشْرِكُونَ يَفْرِقُونَ رُؤُوسَهُمْ وَكَانَ أَهْلُ الْكِتَابِ يَسْدِلُونَ رُؤُوسَهُمْ وَكَانَ يُحِبُّ مُوَافَقَةَ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ فِي مَا لَمْ يُؤْمَرْ فِيهِ بِشَيْءٍ ثُمَّ فَرَقَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ رَأْسَهُ So Ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhuma relates, and there are two chains of narration for this particular hadith. Uh, Ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhu relates that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam would leave his hair sometimes in its very natural state. That the Prophet sallallahu wouldn't like, and what that means, yasdilu sha'rahu, that doesn't mean that the Prophet sallallahu would walk around disheveled. Because the Prophet sallallahu there's a very interesting narration I'll share with you in a bit. But one time the Prophet sallallahu saw a man with disheveled hair, and the Prophet sallallahu said, can't that man find a comb to comb his hair? Right? Like almost like saying, can somebody please pass him a comb? Right? So the, it's not that the Prophet ﷺ would walk around disheveled or that he wouldn't comb his hair. But what it means is that the Prophet ﷺ did not use, some, they, what they would use at that time is they would use sometimes like things like wax or they would use uh, things like that to basically mold their hair into a particular shape and then leave it in that particular shape. The Messenger of Allah ﷺ did not used to do that. But he would let his hair fall naturally as it should. And then he says that the, the, the mushrikun, the idol worshippers, like the culture in Mecca typically was that they used to part their hair in the middle. That they would part their hair in the middle. However, the Ahlul Kitab would not so much like... And so what the mushrikun would do is they would use things like that wax and things like that and they would like really harshly part their hair and apply that wax to hold it. And the Prophet and the Ahlul Kitab did not used to do that. But they used to kind of maintain more of like a natural flow to their hair. And the Prophet of Allah wasallam used to typically prefer, the Prophet preferred um, doing things more in similarity to the Ahlul Kitab than the Mushrikun. In matters where there was not a specific ruling. So unless and until the Prophet, if the Prophet was given a particular instruction by Allah, was given a ruling by Allah, then that's what he would do. But in matters that were left open, like cultural issues, in the early days, early on, if there was a cultural issue, and the mushrikun of Makkah had a particular culture, and the Ahlul Kitab had a particular culture, the Prophet ﷺ actually used to prefer the culture of the Ahlul Kitab. But then he says, later on the Prophet ﷺ started parting his hair. So on one, uh, in one instance you can take this, and uh, this is how you kind of comb or maintain your hair, is more of an open thing. It doesn't have any type of strict instruction in regards to it. This again is an issue where you don't create rules in the religion where there are no rules in the religion. This is not a, an area of piety. Alright, praying five times a day is piety. 
Reading Qur'an is piety. Being honest and trustworthy and truthfulness is piety. Being good to your family members is piety. So on and so forth. Having good akhlaq. Right? Hairstyles are not representative of piety. So that being said, on one, uh, at one level on the surface, you can take this um, to mean that the Messenger of Allah preferred a particular hairstyle at one time, and then later on, he preferred a different hairstyle. It could be as simple as that. However, we know that, that the Messenger of Allah did not just simply do things like that. He didn't just do things for the sake of doing them, because he is the Messenger of God Everything in his life is a form of guidance. If not specifically, as the, the, the scholars mention, that even if it's not, بِعَيْنِهِ فَهُوَ هِدَايَةٌ بِجِنْسِهِ What that means is that if it is not guidance specifically, in doing something specifically, it is still guidance generally. Meaning there is a principle, there is an underlying principle that he's teaching us. The underlying principle that the Messenger ﷺ is teaching us here is that initially when they left Mecca, because this was such a difficult and traumatic time, especially for the Muhajirun, the Muslims of Mecca who had left Mecca, that the Prophet ﷺ was trying to remove any and all negative effects of idol worship from them, and also possibly to kind of allow them to reinvent themselves and leave all that tragedy behind, the torture and the oppression, that the Prophet ﷺ started countering a lot of the Meccan culture and started practicing things or taking things from other cultures to kind of make them depart from the lives that they were coming from. But later on, once that effect was removed, then the Prophet ﷺ parted his hair so as to demonstrate that one culture is not necessarily superior to another culture. I was doing that for a very specific reason. And that was to basically allow you to leave Mecca behind, to leave shirk behind. To leave the negative experiences of those early years behind and to leave that shirk behind. But one culture is not necessarily superior to another culture in matters that don't impact one's religion. As long as it doesn't involve violation of, uh, of Allah's command. Violating of Allah's command. Alright? Then in that case, it's fine. You can practice whatever culture you would like. And there are other instances where the Prophet ﷺ would take an extra step to kind of help the Sahaba leave uh, things that might have been negative things in their past. But then he would also make them leave things that could be associated with them. Another example was, during the time of shirk, uh, worshipping at the graves was another particular issue that they had. And worshipping the dead. So the Prophet ﷺ initially, when they first came to Medina, he told them, don't, worship, don't visit the graveyard. Don't visit graveyards. Don't go and visit the graves. But then later on when he, when he felt that now they were as distant from shirk as they could possibly be, then the Prophet ﷺ said, كُنْتُ نَهَيْتُكُمْ عَنْ زِيَادَةُ الْقُبُورِ I used to tell you not to worship graves. أَلَا فَزُورُوهَا Now you can visit them freely. When wine, alcohol, khamar was first prohibited, they had a particular type of container, a cup, 
of a particular type. What they would actually do is, they would take sometimes certain fruits or vegetables that have a hard shell, they would hollow them out, they would apply like grease or wax inside of it, dry it out in the sun, and then they would use it as a container. And what it did was it would keep things a little bit cooler and would preserve their drink for longer. But they didn't only use it for that. Sometimes people would use it for milk or other things as well. But it was primarily in that culture used for wine. So when wine was first prohibited, the Prophet ﷺ told them, do not use those containers. Like it was haram to use those containers. Even if you were going to use it for water or milk. But then after a few years, the Prophet ﷺ said, now you're allowed to use them. Now you're allowed to use them. Because now that affiliation is gone. That won't be a problem anymore. Alright? So this is an example of that. So this is an example of that as well, where the Prophet ﷺ is basically teaching this uh, to us about cultural issues. The next hadith. Hadith number 8. حَدَّثَنَا مُحَمَّدُ بْنُ بَشَّارِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا عَبْدُ الرَّحْمَانِ بْنُ مَهْدِي عَنْ إِبْرَاهِيمِ بْنِ نَافِعٍ الْمَكِّي عَنْ أَبِي نَجِيحٍ عَنْ مُجَاهِدٍ عَنْ مِهَانِ رضي الله تعالى عنها قالت رأيت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ذا ضفائر أربع أم هاني رضي الله تعالى عنها says I saw the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم and he had four locks of hair his hair was divided into four sections <clears throat> chapter number four باب ما جاء في ترجل رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم the chapter about the, the Messenger of Allah combing his hair. قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا إِسْحَاقُ بْنُ مُوسَىٰ الْأَنصَارِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مَعَنُ بْنُ عِيسَىٰ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مَالِكُ بْنُ أَنَسْ عَنْ هِشَامِ بْنُ عُرْوَىٰ عَنْ أَبِيهِ عَنْ عَائِشَةَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ تَعَلَىٰ عَنْهَا قَالَتْ كُنْتُ أُرَجِّلُ رَأْسَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم وأنا حائد Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha says, I used to comb the hair of the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam even when I was in my days of menstruation. So again, two things that we extract from here is that we again see the intimate interaction between spouses, that the Prophet sallallahu was very intimate with his spouses and we learn that, and again, this is our mother Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha sharing this with us to remind us and to teach us to be very affectionate and intimate with one's spouse. Secondly, again, she specifically mentions, why would she mention that I was in the days of menstruation? What difference would that make? Well, it made a difference in Medina. It made a difference in Medina because the Medinan Arabs, who would later on become Muslim, were neighbors with the Medinan Jews, the Jewish tribes that were in and around Medina. And in the Jewish tribes, unfortunately, they had taken their fiqh so far, too far, to the point where if a woman was in her days of menstruation, as we know that um, intercourse between spouses is not permissible during that time, but they would take it so far where they would have absolutely no physical interaction with one another whatsoever. And so the Prophet ﷺ obviously refuted that and said that is uh, incorrect. And that's why Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha is sharing that with us. 
Hadith number two. قال حدثنا يوسف بن عيسى قال حدثنا وكيع قال حدثنا الربيع بن صبيح عن يزيد بن أبان هو الرقاشي هو الرقاشي عن أنس بن مالك رضي الله تعالى عنه قال كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يكثن يكثر دهن رأسه وتسريح لحيته ويكثر القناع حتى كأن ثوبه ثوب زيات Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu says that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu used to frequently apply oil to his head and he would comb his beard and the Prophet sallallahu would frequently after applying oil to his head put an extra piece of cloth on his head so much so that that cloth would become soaked in oil. Or rather, it can also mean that over time, that cloth became permanently stained with oil. <clears throat> so what this is referring to is the fact that the Prophet ﷺ used to apply oil to his hair. Basically, and again, the applying of the oil, right, is representative. It is te- the Messenger of Allah ﷺ, through his own example, teaching us grooming and maintenance. That he would groom and maintain himself. He would apply oil to even his hands and his feet so that they wouldn't become cracked or dry. He would apply oil to his hair and to his head to maintain um, the health of his scalp and his hair. So he's teaching us maintenance and grooming. That's part of the sunnah of the Prophet So it's not so much that oil is the sunnah, grooming and maintenance is the sunnah. And he would comb his beard similarly and especially the reason why I mentions the combing of the beard here, because a lot of times the bigger your beard gets, the more right interesting it can become as well. So the Prophet ﷺ used to comb his beard, right? Because you're again you're supposed to maintain and groom yourself and be presentable. And then because the Prophet ﷺ would apply oil to his head, then when he would sometimes tie his amama, when he would tie the turban, now the turban could become you know stained with oil. And again, that would not be good, you know, etiquette. That wouldn't be, wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't be presenting yourself very well. Where your headgear is completely stained. Right? And so what the Prophet ﷺ would do is after applying oil, he had kind of like an extra piece of cloth, and he would kind of put that on his head. So that it would soak up at least the oil that was on top of the hair. So that then when he would tie his turban, that then his turban wouldn't become stained. So again, you see the Prophet ﷺ being very good and presentable. Right? And so what we can take from this is, whether it be sometimes, you know, brothers wearing uh, an extra, you know, t-shirt, wearing like an undershirt. Alright? Nobody wants to see your stained pits. Alright? <laughs> so, wear an undershirt. Right? Wear some deodorant. Alright? It's, it's the sunnah. Right? And the Messenger ﷺ would teach us these things afterwards. And so that's something that the Prophet ﷺ would do. And then he says, he's just remembering, he's reminiscing. He said, I remember that little piece of cloth that Prophet ﷺ would use. He would wash it. After it had gotten soaked with oil to an extent, he would wash it and dry it. But you know, if you use something for a particular purpose for an extended period of time, it just gets permanently stained. So it got permanently stained after a while, and he's remembering, he's reminiscing the fact that that cloth itself was permanently kind of stained with oil. Alright? 
And that is another thing. The Prophet ﷺ one time saw, the reason why I mentioned, now I'll tell you, the reason why I mentioned about, you know, even being careful about what your clothes look like. The Prophet ﷺ, there's a hadith in the Sunan of Abu Dawood, Jabir radiallahu ta'ala anhu relates, <clears throat> Atana Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The Messenger of Allah ﷺ approached us. We were sitting, a group of men, we were sitting, and the Messenger ﷺ approached us. Fara'a rajulan sha'ithan. And he saw a man that was disheveled. His hair was all over the place. Does can that can't you find something to kind of bring some peace to your hair? Right? <laughs> was literally the verbiage that he used. He's saying, Can't you find something to comb your hair? But the way that he said it was, he said, Your hair, your hair looks tired. Right? From standing up in so many different directions. Right? So can't you relax your he- head a little bit? And then, وَرَآ رَجُلًا آخر. And then he saw another man. وَعَلَيْهِ ثِيَابٌ وَسِخَةٌ And he was very, wearing kind of like stained clothes. Like his clothes were dirty. فَقَالَ أَمَا كَانَ هَذَا يَجِدُ مَاءً يَغْسِلُ بِهِ ثَوْبَهُ That can't you find some water to wash your clothes with? Right? And again, see? Now the Messenger of Allah somebody could be could say like, well, that's not very nice. Right? Somebody could try to say that. Number one, this is a Messenger Wasallam. He knew these people. He knew all of his people. And he would keep tabs on his people. And so if somebody was truly destitute or miskeen or faqeer or homeless, and he saw them in this state, abadan, he would never say something like that to that person. He must have known that guy. And he must have known he has a house. And he has a home, and he has clothes, and yet he's still walking around like a hobo. <laughs> right? Like, what is this? And so the, the Messenger ﷺ understands that. Number two, Salman al-Farisi says, the Messenger of Allah ﷺ was like a father, like a parent to us. He would teach us. And so this probably could have also been, possibly, a younger sahabi even. So the Prophet ﷺ is educating him, like a father figure. Like, go clean yourself up, young man. What's this? Why are you walking around like this? And then number three, notice the Prophet ﷺ isn't saying like, hey, what you're wearing, that's disgusting, go burn it. Right? <laughs> He's not insulting him. He's not telling him, go buy a new pair of clothes. He just said, just wash your clothes. Brother, just wash your clothes. Right? It's very practical advice. And so you see the wisdom of the Messenger ﷺ. So that's why I talked about the sweaty pits. Alright? <laughs> Hadith number three. قال حدثنا هناد بن السري قال حدثنا أبو الأحوص عن الأشعث ابن أبي الشعثاء عن أبيه عن مسروق عن عائشة رضي الله تعالى عنها قالت إن كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لا يحب التيمنا في طهوره إذا تطهر وفي ترجله إذا ترجل وفي انتعاله إذا انتعل Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha says that without a doubt, like most definitely, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam used to love doing things, starting things from the right side. Whether it was in his purification, which tuhud refers to wudu. So in making wudu, he would start from the right hand side. 
He would comb his hair from the right side. He would start on the right side of his head. When he would put on his shoes, he would first put on the right shoe. And of course, this is not restricted to just these three things. Everything that was good that the Prophet ﷺ used to do, he used to prefer to do it from the right side. Alright, he would eat with his right hand. He would drink with his right hand. He would hand things to people with his right hand. He would take things from people with his right hand. Alright? He used to prefer to do things with his right hand. Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha um, just mentions three different unique things. Number one, by mentioning tuhur, she's mentioning that even if it was something that was religiously, uh, spirit, that was something that was spiritual or religiously significant, he would do it with the right hand. If it was something that was in terms of just his personal, like private conduct, then he would even there maintain preference of the right hand. And if it was something that was done in public, that was just a common thing, public conduct, he would still give preference to the right hand. The only specific thing is that he would do good things with his right hand, and anything that was identified as maybe a bad thing, then he would do it with his left hand. That's why the left hand is what we use for cleansing ourselves after using the restroom, istinja. That's why when the Prophet ﷺ would have to blow his nose, he would do it with his left hand. When the Prophet ﷺ would exit the masjid, he would exit with the left foot. Right? So as to signify that he was leaving a good place. Alright? So that was the habit of the Messenger ﷺ. Hadith number 4 of chapter number 4. I'll take the questions afterwards inshallah. قال حدثنا محمد بن بشار قال حدثنا يحيى بن سعيد عن هشام بن حسان عن الحسن عن عبد الله بن مغفل رضي الله تعالى عنه قال نهى رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم عن الترجل إلا غبا عبد الله بن مغفل رضي الله تعالى عنه relates that the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم forbade Combing of the hair, except occasionally. The Prophet ﷺ forbade the combing of hair, except occasionally. Obviously, strategic pause, right? What does that mean? Right? It, number one, all jokes aside, number one, it just seems contradictory to the previous narration. All right. Number the first problem is is that it seems contradictory to the previous narration. So how do we rec- reconcile this, and how do we understand this? So first and foremost is that some commentators have questioned the authenticity of the narration. However, when scholars have followed up on the narration, they found that this narration itself is supported through so many different routes that it is authentic. So then what exactly is it referring to here? So before I explain it to you, let's go ahead and read hadith number 5 and then I'll explain exactly what's going on in hadith number 4. قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا الْحَسَنُ إِبْنُ عَرَفَ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا عَبْدُ السَّلَامِ إِبْنُ حَرْبٍ عَنْ يَزِيدِ بْنَ أَبِي خَالِدٍ 
عن أبي العلاء الأودي عن حميد بن عبد الرحمن عن رجل من أصحاب النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم كان يترجل غبا حميد ابن عبد الرحمن رحم الله تعالى تابعي he says he relates from one of the companions of the Prophet that the Prophet used to comb his hair occasionally. Now, first and foremost, before I even explain now the concept here, there, this is an issue of usul al-hadith, uh, but I'll just explain it here very briefly. He's, he's saying that he relates from a, a man, a person, from the companions of the Prophet This is normally, verbiage like this would be called jahala birrawi. Jahalatu rawi, al-jahalatu birrawi, not knowing who the narrator is. And if this happens in any other link of the chain, after the sahaba, that somebody narrates and says that, haddathani rajulun, a man told me, we do not accept that narration. Alright? That's considered a gap in a link of the chain. That's a gap in the chain of narration. We do not accept that. That is a void. In qita'. However, if that happens in the generation of Sahaba, the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, then in that particular case, it is not problematic. All the Sahaba are trustworthy. They are all dependable, they are all reliable. And so it's nice to know who the Sahabi is, but if for whatever reason, we don't know, but it is coming from a Sahabi, then that is not a problem. Humayd bin Abdurrahman is a very well-known tabi'i who interacted with many different Sahaba and authentically and authoritatively narrates from the Sahaba. That's why we don't have a problem with this. Alright? Now talking about the concept here, what does it mean to comb his hair occasionally? So the first thing is that Again, in some places, in some usages of the word, sometimes the word ghibban means like every other day. Yawman ba'da yawmin. Yawman ba'da yawmin. Alright? That it means like every other day. That meaning does not apply here necessarily. It does not necessarily mean that the Prophet ﷺ would comb his hair every other day. That's not what it necessarily means. But occasionally means that the Prophet of Allah would not like obsessively comb his hair. He wasn't just seen all the time busting out a comb and just combing his hair all the time. You know who you are. Alright? <laughs> so he was not seen doing this all the time. He wasn't obsessed with his hair. Even though he had beautiful hair. Right? But he was not obsessed with his hair. Because he was not a vain person. Alright, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, again, the Prophet ﷺ could have combed his hair every day, but the Sahabi is saying, I didn't see him combing his hair every day, but maybe he was doing it in the privacy of his home. And then the third thing is, where I want to explain, so that explains hadith number five. As for hadith number four, why is he telling this, this man, this Sahabi, not to comb his hair all the time, but only comb it occasionally? Abdullah ibn Mughaffal is a younger Sahabi. Does it make sense now? I love how that's so self-explanatory. All you had to say that he was a young man. And everybody understands that he was a young person. So that means, obviously the Prophet was telling him, not to be so vain, not to be so obsessed with your looks. There's more to you as a person. 
If you pay, you know, like I would, or, or we would say to somebody, of course the Sahaba are amazing people, but how like we would say to a young person, that if you worried about your character half as much as you worry about your hair, you'd be an amazing person. If you spend half the amount of time, you know, worrying about your, you know, character as you do about your looks, your appearance, you'd be a remarkable human being. You'd be a beautiful person. Right? And so that's,